I was on an airplane this week, uh, flying back to Dallas on Wednesday afternoon after being away on study leave. And I was uh, just in awe of how much our city has grown in the short time that I've lived here. We, uh, we had to make our flight path around our city and almost for as far as the eye could see, there was development and business and housing. I was in awe of how much our city had grown. Many of you are responsible for that growth. You occupy office towers that we fly over and the decisions you make help, uh, help to determine the trajectory of our city. I was amazed at how many new housing structures were going up. And as, we, as I flew over our city, I realized how grateful I am to live in Preston Hollow. We live in a great part of town. It's beautiful, we have trees, and it's fun now to have lived here long enough where I can pick out our church and her steeple from the air. Surrounded, uh, we're surrounded this morning in this very sanctuary by beautiful homes. We're surrounded uh, by well-manicured lawns. We're surrounded by really nice cars. We are surrounded by wonderful families. And sometimes when we're surrounded by all of that, we sometimes miss what we can only see when we get 10,000 feet in the air. The reality is we live in one of the most desirable neighborhoods on the planet. And just down the street from us, there are pockets and regions of poverty in our city. Oftentimes just out of our sight and also out of our minds. And so uh, for the next three weeks, we're going we're gonna to explore a, a sermon series entitled Seeking the Welfare of the City, because as people of faith, we have to remember the 10,000-foot view. we got to remember that just down the street from where we live, there are people who live in a different zip code than ours, and we have to have our eyes wide open to how they live. Uh, we, have to, we have to do that because we have to recognize God's call in our lives that we belong to one another no matter what our zip code may be. This is not meant, this series, to indict us for how we live, but it is a series meant to pull back the layer so that we can live with eyes wide open. Let me state the obvious from the very beginning. I'm not a sociologist. I don't have a PhD in statistics. I am not a, a, a trained and licensed social worker. This series is not going to be about the root causes. This sermon today is not going to be about the root causes of poverty, but I am a theologian. And the series is going to be about how God calls us to live in relationship with one another, recognizing, my dear, dear friends, that there are all types of poverty. There are many types of poverty. There are spiritual poverty. There's uh, the relationships that are impoverished, marriages that are in great need. There are houses uh, that may be surrounding our very church this morning that are absolutely full of stuff. And the only thing that is missing is love. Oh, there are many types of, of poverty, but there's material poverty. And so we're gonna, we need to wrestle together with the material poverty of our city. Do you know that uh, it is estimated now that one in 10 Americans live at or below the poverty line? 
The United Way just released a study. The United Way, about as middle of the road as you can get on some things, released a study stating that 42% of Texans, 42% of Texans now are what they call Alice's. That means they are asset limited, income constrained, employed. 42% of Texans are a health crisis away from bankruptcy or a life event away from unemployment with no safety net of savings. These are oftentimes people who work multiple jobs or uh, in your minds, I imagine uh, the house cleaner at the local motel. So beginning today and for the next couple of weeks, we're gonna take a look a deeper look at the material poverty of our city that is all around us. And we're going to do it not only because it's important. I think all of us want to seek the welfare for all of the people in our city. But we're going to do it as people of faith. Because Jesus calls us to care for the least of these in our community, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so together we're going to talk about what the gospel has to say what Jesus says about how to care for one another. This is what I know as we begin. Our community is at her best when we wrestle with big issues. It's what caused us to create the Preston Hollow School. It's what caused us to create Vickery Meadow. We are at our best when we, when we go in eyes wide open. So we're going to go into this series with eyes wide open. And let me just say it may get a little uncomfortable. But it's my prayer that through all of this, that we're going to hear the good news of the gospel. We're going to hear the good news of a God who gives hope and worth and dignity to all of God's people. And so today we're going to uh, turn to the prophet Jeremiah and to the 29th chapter of the book of Jeremiah to hear his prophecy for the Israelites. But before we turn to that page in the Bible, this is what you need to know about this text. The Babylonian Empire, they were evil people. And the Babylonians lived about as far as uh, Fort Worth to Dallas. The Babylonian Empire was very interested on having a growth strategy and taking over surrounding kingdoms. And so the Babylonian Empire had a tactic called laying siege. Everybody clear on what laying siege is? They would deploy their army, they would surround your city with their army, and they would literally choke off resources to your people, ensuring that water, food, wine, basic necessities. <laughs> God, you are good. <laughs> wine is a basic necessity. <laughs> that precious resources couldn't get to the people in Jerusalem. The Babylonian Empire has been, been laying siege to Jerusalem for four years. The people uh, in Jerusalem literally had been brought to their knees. And that's when the Babylonians rushed into to the city, took over the city of Jerusalem. They tore the temple to the ground. They assaulted the people. They, they laid siege. They and then what they did was they took the best people out of Jerusalem and sent them to Babylon. And just for good measure, do you know what the Babylonian army did on their way out of town? They took salt and they sprinkled it in all available 
fields for food, ensuring the people that they left behind could not grow food for generations. The prophet Jeremiah is writing our text this morning to those who have just been sent into exile in Babylon. These are Israelites now living in a foreign land of the people who have hurt them and traumatized them. So with those eyes, with those ears, with that mind, let us hear the word of God this morning. Listen, because this word may just change our lives. It may just change the way we live. It may just change our city. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Remind us, O God, that you hover here. Remind us that you hover here just as you hovered over the waters of creation. Remind us that you hover over the chaos that is our lives and our world and remind us that it was through your word that you created order out of chaos. Remind us that you hover here to breathe new life through these ancient words that they might be your word to us here and now and remind us, O God, that you hover here to breathe new life into the words of my mouth and into the meditations of all of our hearts that all would be acceptable and because you, O oh God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the Ruffner family, we live here in Preston Hollow. We feel very fortunate for that. We, live, we happen to live right across the street from Kramer Elementary School. Every single morning at 7.15, rain or shine, the carpool line forms right in front of our house. I can see it right in front of our front window. If I go to the side of our, our, of our house, I can see where the buses have lined up to drop off children. I imagine every morning that I see that carpool line form right in front of my house, I imagine that this scene happens at every public school in North Dallas. I see her, there she is, a little girl. She hops right out of a luxury SUV. She looks well rested, she runs right into the school. I imagine that she uh, slept in her own bed that night. I, I imagine that she sat down and had a nourishing breakfast that morning. She's got her monogrammed backpack on. I imagine that her homework is in that backpack and that she sat down the night before with her mom and her, with her dad to, to complete that homework. She looks ready to go set for a full day at school. And she better be ready because it's going to be a full day, not just at school, 
But after school is out, she's going to run out and jump back into that SUV. And she's got an afternoon full of extracurriculars. She's got piano lessons. And then she's got to go to swim team. Maybe even volleyball. And then uh, she gets home that night and she sits down at the kitchen table with her, her mom and her dad and, and she does her homework for the next day. It's a, you know, rinse and repeat kind of thing. And then there's a, a, another car that pulls up right in front of my house. There's another little girl. She climbs out of the back seat of the car and uh, this time it was a, a car I imagine that she spent the night in. In fact, just a half an hour ago, uh, that car, they had been at the local fast food restaurant so that she could run in and use the restroom and grab her toothbrush and brush her teeth and get ready for the day. She also has her backpack on. I imagine that homework's right in the backpack. Although the homework's not completed because uh, the day before, the, the public library had to shut down. It was closing hours. She and her mom didn't get to that final page of homework. Her mom works at, uh, as a cleaner, as a maid at the local motel. She works every single day. She works as hard as she possibly can. She doesn't miss work, rain, or shine either. But she couldn't get that last piece of homework done. Later that morning, these two little girls, I imagine them, I can see them. They sit down in the same classroom. They, they actually or just a row over from one another. They pull out their number two pencils. They're gonna take the national standardized math test. And I wonder, does one of these girls, does she have an advantage over the other? Of course. I ask that question because uh, I learned that one in five children in North Texas live in poverty today. One in five. I learned uh, that 90% of our students in DISD, 90, 90 of our students in DISD live at or below the poverty line. Uh, I learned that Dallas now leads the country um, in the gap between the rich and the poor. But we know that poverty is nothing new, right? It's been here for as long as we can remember. It's, it's why Preston Hollow, with other faith communities, came together to join in mission and to create North Dallas Shared Ministry so that we could be on the, the front lines of those who are in crisis and poverty. It's what has led faith communities like ours to even step over the divide and into the corporate world and for us together to create North Dallas Food Bank, providing food to those who literally, who don't know where their next meal is going to come from. Did you know that the, the, the North Dallas Food Bank last year had never raised more money in her history than they did last year? And did you know that the North Dallas Food Bank last year took that money and fed more people than they ever had in her history? And did you know last year there have never been more hungry people in North Dallas? Our solution 
to these overwhelming issues of poverty. And, and the scale is large. I mean, numbers that some of you accountants can use and understand, and I can't wrap my mind around what numbers like this look like. Our solution to these big scale issues of poverty has, has been merely to build larger centers. So we build, a, we, we add a, a clothes closet to the food bank, and then we add a, then, then we add a, a, a health clinic on the other side of the food bank, or we just build larger food distribution centers. Kathy Lee Cornell, our associate pastor for, for mission, loves to tell this parable. She loves to tell the parable of the husband and wife who uh, sneak out of the city on a Friday afternoon. They're going to go camping. They get to their campsite. They set up camp. They get their tent set right there by the river. They get their fire going. Everything is wonderful. They roast marshmallows before they go to bed, and they wake up in the morning, and the wife walks out. It's right by the river, and she can see right there in the river there's a child floating downstream. The woman jumps, like all of us would, right into the river and grabs that child, brings the child back to their camp, dries that child, makes sure the child is fed. And they said, we're a long way from home, but we will make sure that we get you back. The next morning, they wake up. It's the husband's turn to get out of the tent first. He sees another child floating downstream. He does exactly what you and I would do. He jumps right in the river, pulls the child out. They get the child dried off and fed. This happens five nights in a row. And the wife has the good sense. And the wives always have the good sense. <laughs> On day six, to ask this question, where are all these children coming from? We gotta, we gotta spend day six hiking up, and we gotta get upstream and figure out where these kids are falling in. Y'all, we have to get upstream on the issues that are contributing to poverty in our city. We need uh, bigger, and let me also say, better and smarter solutions that are facing our town. What we have been doing, it's not been working. And I think that we can all agree on that. I just talked to a, a church member who was here at 9.30. He chaired the food bank. And every year, he said the, the statistics overwhelmed him. We got to get upstream, not only to address these issues. I'm type A. I want to solve these problems because they're problems, but we miss the point if we approach it this way. We got to get upstream because we got to recognize that we are like the couple that was camping and the children floating down these streams belong to us. That there are uh, lives that are on the other side of these statistics. There are children, one in five children in North Dallas live in poverty. There are children on the other side of those numbers. We have to recognize that those children belong to us. That these are our sons and daughters who are suffering. These are uh, what Jesus would call the least of these. So the prophet Jeremiah in our passage this morning um, is speaking to the Israelites. And like we've already covered, uh, they're in exile because their land has been totally taken over. They've been utterly traumatized. They are hurting and they are broken. And in their moment of greatest vulnerability, their greatest temptation is our temptation. It was to turn inward and to protect 
their fellow Israelites in this foreign land, to keep their families close, to not trust anyone, to look out for only themselves. After all, they're in Babylon. They're in the very land of the people who took them over. Why should they care about those people? Why should they do anything productive to support that land? But the prophet Jeremiah implores them to do something absolutely radical. When we understand that they are in the land of their oppressors, we come to hear the power of this text that in their greatest moment of vulnerability, that they are called by Jeremiah not to look inward, but to begin looking outward because their well-being, the prophet Jeremiah says, is wrapped up in the well-being of all of God's people. Jeremiah was trying to teach them that they aren't merely trying to take care of others at the expense of themselves. But rather, as a community, that we are all better when all people are doing okay. Don't close yourself off. Open yourselves up to the well-being of all God's people. So if uh, Jeremiah is teaching the Israelites, who are now in exile, in their greatest moment of vulnerability, to look outward, it begs the question, doesn't it? It begs the question, what should we do in our moments of perceived strength. I was flying into Dallas, and I've been in enough of your offices now where I fly in over the city, and I think, that's where so-and-so works. They got a great food court in that building. Do you know who works in that building? It changed the entire way that Dallas grew over here. Some of the greatest minds in our city, some of the greatest leaders in our city sit staring at me this morning. And you belong to a church because of your generosity. Let's get real clear on this. Because of your generosity that gives over a million dollars a year in missions. $600,000 of that is budgeted mission. The rest is in it begs the question of leaders, and you are a leader, even if you're sitting there going, all I do is teach kids. Really? That's all? Sounds like a leader to me. The question before us is, what is God calling us to do in our moments of perceived strength? You have some of the greatest minds in our city. You have some of the greatest connections in our city. Surely we can do better than what these statistics tell us. I continue to be inspired by, one, by what one Presbyterian did. The way that he transformed the way that he saw the world and how he addressed poverty in his own city and how he invested in his life. And let me say this. He was a retired person. All of you folks who are retired or staring retirement in the face, let me say you may be the greatest gift to the world because you have a lifetime of experience and it takes you 10 minutes to do what it takes us young folks 45 minutes to do because you've seen it and done it before. This guy's retired, 
His name's Tom Cousins. He's sitting at his uh, breakfast table one morning in Atlanta. He's drinking his coffee. He's reading the New York Times, and he reads the following article. 80% of the prison population in New York City can be traced back to five boroughs in New York. This was long before the whole fake news thing, so he picked up his telephone and he called the weekend editor of the New York Times, and he said, I just read the most incredible article in your newspaper this Saturday morning, and I'm calling to tell you, you gotta have it wrong, because that just can't be. 80% of the prison population can't be traced back to five boroughs in New York City. And the editor, the weekend editor said, uh, what's your name? He said, I'm Tom Cousins. He said, where are you from? He said, oh, I'm from Atlanta. He said, well, Mr. Cousins, thank you for calling us this morning. Not only is that true, I suspect if you called the police chief down in Atlanta, it might be true there as well. Tom Cousins hung up the phone, called the police chief in Atlanta. He said, I just read the most incredible article this morning. It said 80% of the prison population in New York can be traced back to five boroughs. I didn't think that was true. They told me to call you. And he said, yeah, Tom, we can trace 80% of the prison population to four. And a majority to one. And Tom said, you're kidding. He said, no. He said, well, where, where, where's that one? He said, the Eastlake neighborhood. Tom said, where? He said, the Eastlake neighborhood, Eastlake Meadows. Tom said, I got to go see that. And the police chief said, uh, with all due respect, you're not going there. And Tom said, why wouldn't I go there? He said, uh, Mr. Cousins, I think you need to understand that our officers have stopped patrolling that neighborhood. Uh, they don't go in anymore. They call it Little Vietnam. There's a $300 million drug trade that comes through there, and it is beyond hope. Tom said, I'll meet you in Vietnam. Tom Cousins got in his car from North Atlanta, and he drove to Eastlake, and the police chief was in his car waiting on him. Got, uh, Tom got out of the car. He uh, began to walk the streets, and there was trash everywhere. There were kids everywhere, and Tom noticed this woman. She was holding this beautiful child. And so he walked over, he said, hey, my name is, my, my name's Tom, what's the name of your child? And she said, oh, oh, this baby? And he said, yeah, yeah, what's the name of your child? She goes, oh, oh, this is not my baby. And Tom said, well, who is it? She said, oh, this is my grandbaby. And Tom said, uh, I don't want to offend you, but I, 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 can I ask you a question, and, and I hope it doesn't offend, um, would you mind sharing with me how old you are? And she said, not at all, I'm 29. Tom got uh, back in his car and he drove to uh, his house and his wife Ann was waiting on him and he said, Ann, I have to tell you the story today of how I met a 29-year-old grandmother. Tom went to bed that night and he had a dream in his sleep. In his dream, he died. He got to heaven, God was waiting on him, Tom, and God said, Tom, you were very successful. You were a very successful businessman. Uh, you were a very fine Presbyterian, if I do say so. But quick question for you, Tom. Uh, what did my church have to say to the 29-year-old grandmother that you met? Tom woke up and he said that question haunted him all day. He didn't tell his soul about it, but he went to bed that next night, had the same exact dream, dies, gets to heaven, God's waiting on him. God says, Tom, you have been really successful. You have been one fine Presbyterian. Quick question. Uh, what did... next day at the office, he began calling in his closest friends. He said, I don't, I don't know what to make of this, but I got to tell you about this crazy dream I've had for two nights in a row now. 
Brother Knighty has been agreeing. Guys, he's agreeing to get the heavy God's weight on us. Tom, you built one of the biggest commercial real estate groups in the country. You've helped start more Presbyterian churches and keep more pastors from burnout than anybody that I've ever met. But I tell me, Tom. I'm not asking. Tell me. My church had something to say to that 29-year-old grandma that you met. Tom woke up. He rolled over to his wife, Ann. He woke her up, and he said, Ann, we got to do something about that 29-year-old grandma. Changed his entire life. They went to their family foundation office that day, and they pulled back on all the ways that they had funded for the last 30 years. They created a model that was uh, expensive. And it wasn't easy. They had to build uh, relationships. Mr. Cousins started going to community, community meetings right inside where a $300 million drug trade was happening. It wasn't cheap. But he began with the question, how do we care for the 29-year-old grandma? And here's the miracle of that visit. I'll never forget the first time he told me that story. And all I could think about was the money. I said, Tom, that must have cost you a fortune. I said, I mean, you have more money than God because God doesn't really care that much about money, but <laughs> it, it, cost, it cost you everything. How much, money, uh, how much money have you invested in that, by the way? And you know what he said? to Eastlake and discovered that that 29-year-old grandma, I went to Eastlake to discover that 29-year-old grandma belonged to me. And I belong to her. That's the miracle. I went to Eastlake to discover that if God's grace includes me, if even I belong to God, and we are all part of the body of Christ. We're part of the same body. The miracle is that she belongs to me. We belong to Christ, and we don't get to decide who's in and who's out and who deserves it and who doesn't. Matthew, that's alone. That's up to God alone. Or to put it another way, our welfare is wrapped up in the very welfare of all God's people. It's like Tom Cousins had the experience of Thomas Burton that day that he was standing on the street in Louisville, Kentucky. Thomas Burton said, I just was standing there and I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I love all of these people they're mine and I'm, I'm theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we are total strangers. My dear, dear friends, as we continue to wrestle with these really complex issues facing our city over these next few weeks, this is where we have to begin.
got to begin knowing that we belong to one another. And we got to heed the call of prophet Jeremiah. We have to resist with every fiber in our being that tells us to pull inward. We got to follow the words of Jeremiah as it begins to face outward. So that we may begin to seek the well-being of all of God's people. My dear friends, may we be inspired well beyond where we have settled. May we be inspired well beyond places we have settled, to the many places that God would have us to be, for our welfare is wrapped up in the welfare of